Welcome to the Assembly at Heckfield Place podcast. I'm Lucy Hislop, curator of this eclectic programme of year-round events. A gentle Georgian home in Hampshire with 430 acres of woodland, lakes and gardens, Heckfield has always been a place to bring interesting and interested people together. Continuing this legacy, the Assembly calls on curious minds with a focus on looking forward and on our relationship with nature. Each episode features an edited conversation with our guests. As part of this month's Value of Adventure series, this episode explores the psychological and physiological endurance and stamina needed for extraordinary explorations. I chat with three young explorers and motivational speakers, George Bullard, Marina Ranger and Jamie Sparks. My name is Lucy Hislop, and I'm lucky enough to be the curator of the assembly at Heckfield Place, where for 250 years, the Walpole and Shaw Lefebvre uh, families used to have many political salons in here and definitely invited the community in. And it's something that our owners, the Chan family, are very keen on getting interesting people and interested people together which I really feel we do tonight. Every month we wrap it in a a value. And um, September, with this fine panel, uh, we are in the value of adventure. So I'm hoping that all three of them, with a few questions, are going to delve into the um, psychological and physical endurance and the stamina needed for these extraordinary uh, explorations. So let me introduce you a little to their legendary antics. Um, George Bullard is a world record-breaking explorer. At 14, he was part of a team to swim the English Channel, circumnavigate Barbados, and New York's Manhattan Island, although I'm thinking not on the same day. But I mean, this is the thing. Then George left school. So he had done all of that before he'd left school. Then he spent two months um, on the Antarctic island of South Georgia. And at 19, he achieved a feat that explorer Sir Sir Ranulph Fiennes described as genuinely groundbreaking. He completed the world's longest fully unsupported polar journey of all time. Which I think actually deserves a round of applause. So Marina Ranger was 22 when she completed her first ultramarathon running, that is, running 250 kilometres in seven days across the Kalahara Desert in South Africa with a week's supply of food and kit on her back. Six years on, the stats have racked up 20-plus ultramarathons, two half Ironmans, two full Ironmans, one long-distance triathlon where she represented Britain. And therefore, it's clear that you've got a full-time job fueling your passion for endurance sports in the hours outside of a career in business operations for a property company. So I think that deserves a round of applause. You also have a crack small brain. Jamie. No. Hello. Jamie's also a British adventurer and motivational speaker. They are all. Um, he holds the Guinness World Record alongside his friend Luke Birch, for the youngest pair to row across any ocean. He rode for 54 days surviving off dehydrated food. I mean, just even the thought. 
um, raising a record total for breast cancer care of more than 300,000. Yep, yep. That deserves a round of applause. <laughs> <laughs> so just to round off a few of your antics... The following year, he captained a crew who became the fastest four-men crew to row unsupported across the Indian Ocean. So I was trying to do the maths and to work out how many miles do you think you have journeyed by muscle power alone? And my maths is probably not very good, but Marina, I think there's at least a 1,000 miles in ultramarathons. I've never actually counted it myself. No. Maybe I was, it was a bit of a sad moment for me, but I really wanted to know, because I know that, George, it's at least 2,000 on foot. 2,000 miles on foot. It's pretty daft. It's pretty daft. And then I know that you've rode one ocean, which is at least 3,000 miles. Yeah. And I haven't even done the other ocean. The Indian is, is about 3,500, so 6,500. Knocking on 7,000. Yeah. So I guess my first question, actually, and there will be questions... Um, I, from, from the audience, but do you have the same brain as me? <laughs> Who's going to take... Is this for me or open to the panel? It's open. Do it. Yes, of course. Um, that's one of the messages that I'm sure we all share is that anyone can do these challenges. Um, I'd say the only thing that it, that it requires is that you have to want to do it more than anything else on Earth because along the way, every single day on these journeys, there are opportunities where you want to anything you just want to give up you just want to you know get on the sat phone call in a rescue on the ice cap if it was george or for a cargo ship to come pick me up in the middle of the atlantic but um there are opportunities to quit all the time and, and you've just got to want to achieve it more than anything because that's the only thing that will keep you going so yes anyone is capable of doing these challenges you've just got to want it a hell of a lot do you feel that marina yeah and um it's the confidence, like whenever I enter a race, I, I never, ever let the thought cross my mind that I'm not going to complete it, because I think the second you do, that's when all else fails. Um, so, yeah, it's not only wanting it, but it's also having the confidence that you can get to the finish and visualising yourself at the finish whilst you're training, whilst you're actually doing the challenge itself. I'm going to helpfully take the other end of the spectrum and, and be like, um, I have a bucket box. And uh, in that bucket box, it just goes these opportunities which arrive. And uh, someone might say to you, do you want to row across, across the Indian Ocean? Do you want to walk this journey? And you just chuck it in the bucket box and go, you know what? I'm going to go for it. I'm going to give it a shot. Because what's the worst that can happen? You can fail, right? You can fail. And that's quite a bad thing to have to handle yourself, but actually I think it's a really good thing to have to handle, failure and risk. If, you can, if that risk profile is palatable, then actually I think you should just go for it. Give it everything you've got, because I think if you choose not to do it and let that opportunity sail past you, I think you might get to the end of your, one's life and be like, bugger, I wish I'd done that, you know? I wish I'd done that. And I, I think, so although we all have the same brain and the same uh, approach as you, Lucy, I think maybe my personal appetite for risk and failure 
might be a little bit different to yours. So, for example, if someone said to you this evening, do you want to go for a swim in a lake? You might be, no, because it's cold and I might not want to get in. Whereas I'm like, hell yeah, let's go for it because, I don't know, I might find a lily pad to go and sit on. And I think you did, because, yeah, yeah. yes. <laughs> and I found we a all... lily pad. <laughs> There's a very lovely uh, Instagram story that suddenly appeared just before this, explaining uh, where you went and how you yeah. did it, and it looked amazing. And the sign which says, please do not swim or fish in this lake. <laughs> you, you just got the wrong lake. That's just fine. That's good. Um, as I said, you know, if you need a compass and you need some help in exploration <laughs> and, where, and where you yeah. go, that's just fine. Well, I guess for me, you know, adventure is maybe doing the odd Tough Mudder. And, uh, well, yeah, absolutely. Perhaps a bit of wild swimming here at Heckfield every now and then. Uh, I have... I have gone in the right lake, um, so that's fine. The compass, I found where I was meant to go. So what defines adventure for you, George? Uh, I, I, I genuinely believe that we all have adventure in us. I genuinely believe that. Uh, and to illustrate that, I will take you all right back to when you were first, when you were kids, right? And we all had that, sense, that curiosity, that sense of adventure, that... Uh, wonderlust as to what was around the corner, what was on top of the bed, what was up the ladder, what was, uh, you know, under the water. And I, I believe that we all then go to school, we all follow the same paths through life and come out a bit like a box. <laughs> a bit like uh, someone who's been asked in an interview, what's your degree? Uh, well, I got um, a T1 in biological science and management from Edinburgh. And everyone's quite like the same, right? They're all following the same platform, uh, same sort of rigorous structure. And for me, uh, I've never really let that sense of adventure go. And that sense of uh, in inquisition, that sense of wonder, as what it's like in the lake, what it's like around the corner, what it's like up the tree. And something which I really plan to like, really hold on to forever. So for me, that we all have that sense of adventure in us. We can all revisit that. And it's a very personal thing. So your adventure, sir, might be very different to your adventure, sir. Your Everest is very different to his Everest. And same for you, madam. Your Everest is very different to the person sitting behind you. Everyone's Everest is different. And I will implore you and encourage you tomorrow to get up and, I guess, do something which maybe scares you, which you might not necessarily have done unless, uh, I guess, unless the opportunity arose. And I think hold that sense of curiosity that you had when you were a child um, and, and, and see where those adventures take you. God, that's quite motivation, isn't it, Blimey. Right, well, Gosh, yeah, um, I'm in yeah, we're all off. To the bar. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'd like you to each of you, uh, to transport us sort of right here, right now, to one of your special journeys, because actually it feels like we've, you've all got quite a few to choose. But just tell us a little bit um, about why it was such a highlight. I, I mean, I think the first thing that sort of sprung to my mind was probably actually one of my lowest moments um, when I was running 500 kilometres in five days um, across Holland... Um, so it was a self-organized challenge I did with a friend that I met in my first ultramarathon in the Kalahari. Um, and so we were running five consecutive days, 100k per day. Um, 
And it was just relentless. It, we were just absolutely killing our bodies. Um, and we were raising money for breast cancer. And anyway, my parents had met us on the third day. And I think when you, when I, when I know that my parents were there, it's easier to break down with people that you're much closer to. Um, but my body was in pieces anyway. I had cut holes in my shoes because my feet had swollen so much. My knees were in bits. I, like The only thing I actually had energy to do was burst into tears, which is very unlike me because I don't cry much. I don't like to cry much. Um, but I think something in me, I, I think the fact that I'd committed to reaching the finish and I had built up to this moment for so long... I just, there was nothing in me that wanted to give up. Um, and um, I, just, I just kept going, even though I was probably the weakest out of the pair. Um, because, yeah, I, just, I, I don't know what it was. Um, I was just determined to get to that finish. And, the, yeah, so that, that's the uh, thing that I always think back to when I'm feeling at my worst in any race that I do um, since then, so. That you, that you were at your lowest, but you carried on going. Is that yeah. what keeps driving you Yeah, in, in, in future races kind of thing? I think so, yeah. I mean, even my parents came up to me and said, Marina, you do not have to finish this. You don't have to do it, because they could see how awful I was. Um, but I just said, absolutely not categorically no I'm going to get to that finish no matter how long it takes me how broken I am at the finish even if I finish and I can't run for a year later because I've ruined my knees so much I was going to get there um yeah yeah so I do think back to that moment I suppose and I'm sure I've got a couple you... of humdingers yeah yeah um on the on the Atlantic uh <clears throat> I did it with my best mate, and we were, we were 21 at the time. And uh, the problem with doing something, a challenge like this with your best mate, is that you, uh, you don't make an effort because you know each other so well, like you were doing it with a sibling. And uh, we were at sea for 54 days, and by day 10, we hated each other. And uh, you row two hours on whilst the other one sleeps, and then you rotate all day, all night, for two months, whenever. And, uh, and by 10, we had... We took every opportunity for when we changed shifts to compare how far the one had rowed whilst the other one was sleeping. And uh, we would then tell the other one how bad they, badly they had done. It was the most awful situation you can get to when you're on a 24-foot rowing boat in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. And uh, it was in the middle of the night on this, on this particular low point, And uh, we were at the height of our hatred for each other. And bear in mind, we had another 30, 40 days of rowing. Um, and, and, and the wind was howling and it's raining and the waves are twice the height of this um, auditorium. Um, and he, and we, I said something and he spat at me. And, uh, and, I, and it was just as we changed shifts, so I was on the rowing seat, I just put my, the foot straps over mine and he was just getting into the cabin, just where that black line is there. And I said, if you, if you spit at me one more time, I'm gonna kill you. And, uh, and he did. And uh, so I lunged for him and, uh, and but, but a couple of seconds of me having to get my feet out gave him the opportunity to get in the cabin, shut the hatch, and then, and then lock it. And I was banging away at this hatch for maybe a minute or so. I'm going to kill you. I'm going to effing kill you when you get out. You can't stay out there forever. He, he had all the food in there and the water. <laughs> I was the one that couldn't stay on deck forever. And, and then I tried to 
jump over the solar panel cabin uh, to try and get get in through the other. And, and at that point, I came to and I thought this is incredibly dangerous because, you know, if you if you lose the boat, if you fall over, um, then the boat is moving a lot faster than you could ever swim. So you're never catching it, and then you'll die a very lonely death, drifting at sea, wondering whether you'll ever be found. Um, so we uh, eventually, you know, after my two hours, or maybe I did 2010, because just to see if he was actually going to come out. But I had to go up to the cabin and say, Luke, I'm so sorry, I didn't mean that. And eventually I managed to coax him out. And, and we didn't speak really for the next 25, 30 days. Um, which <laughs> seriously? When, so yeah, yeah, seriously. And my audio within books. Those, gosh. Yeah, and my, all you have for entertainment when you're rowing is, is your iPod. And I, I took two and they both got salt damage and died. So I was just rowing alone for, for, for 30 days um, on my shifts, just thinking about every thought I'd ever had in my life. Um, and I would walk, you know, crawl into the cabin after my shifts and just cry because I, just the lack of stimulation was killing me. There was nothing to get my brain cells firing, which then leads me on to the best moments, is that when you've been through hell for your, for your mind, which we did go through, hell and it was a terrible terrible experience and I wouldn't recommend anyone does it um, but once you go to the depths it makes the finish absolutely euphoric and uh, and I remember we were rowing towards Antigua 50 but you know day 53 and then suddenly the clouds which you've seen they're the same color for months or for you know one and a half months they, they get darker and then you realize it's an island in the distance and then it turns to green and then you see palm trees and the water turns from this gunmetal grey to turquoise. And it's every dream you've ever had in your entire life coming true at the same time. And it just hits you and it's indescribable. So it's completely from the depths of hating someone, ready to hit them and all of that, to the height. Yeah. Were you talking at the end? Just uh, checking. No, we actually uh, we posed for the photos and then we split to other sides of the island and didn't speak for nine months. I think that's actually very common, isn't it, with uh, people who do row together? I think across, it is. Uh, and, and it, th it's a known thing. And I think for Antarctic journeys as well, I've heard Randolph Fiennes and Mike Stroud, his, um, his well-known partner, <laughs> I think you, you develop very unhealthy thoughts. And part of doing adventures is having the, um, the correct mentality to realise that these thoughts are natural and probably, like, um, probably due to lack of sleep or lack of blood sugar levels. And just to get on because the mission is more important than you know, your relationship. But then you're not going to complete your mission if you don't look after your relationship. So, Was it The Crossing, Ben Fogel mm, and yeah, yeah, James exactly. Cracknell? Had you read that before? I'm yes, about that's timing. how I found out about the challenge. Right, so you found that and you still did it after reading that book. Well, that's the reason I wanted to do it. Because, sure. Uh, but also, <laughs> I mean, quite frankly, many of us have also watched The Perfect Storm. Who's watched The Perfect Storm? George yeah. Clooney. Everyone must George, have seen George that. Clooney. Who's watched George Clooney go up and down in his boat? I mean, that's terrifying enough. That, I don't want to do that, at that challenge. I mean, obviously, I want to do it now that you've described it so beautifully. <laughs> um, but, um, I don't know, transport us to the middle of the ocean. Because I don't, most of us would, not be able to imagine that well, what, what, nothingness in a way what but scares you on um, well as you leave the island you know it gets the island gets further away and it's, there's this big volcano in, on the Canary Island that you leave from and then it, it fades and it turns to cloud and then you come out from your next two hour two hour sleep and it's gone and, and then and you don't know how you're going to react when you first lose sight of land 
because there's, there's not much simulation you can do. Um, and then the waves get bigger and what terrifies you by lunchtime on day one is normal by lunchtime on day two. And then a storm comes and you're, you're shaking on the oars, desperately trying to keep the boat in line with the waves because if it turns, then you'll get flipped. Um, and what terrifies you by, you know, with that first storm is then normal weather. And when you leave, you know, a thousand miles out and get into the big rollers of the Atlantic where the trade winds send the waves across to the Caribbean, then these huge waves that I was describing, you know, they're just, you just come to the top like you do and then just come over. Um, and you try and catch them because if you lean back and get, get the weight right, then you can surf down them and you go 20 knots if you get it right. But you don't want to plant your nose because if you're, if you're going down a wave and, and the nose plants in, then the boat can capsize end over end. And that has happened to people. Um, but to answer and your question, it is terrifying and it's incredibly boring, but you can't give up. Unlike a, a long distance triathlon or a marathon, you can stop and there are people everywhere waiting to take you home. Once you start these challenges, you can't stop. So actually they're, they're easier in some respects because there ain't, they're, they're, you know, there's no getting off. There's no way out. Yep, exactly. Yeah. And that must be the same when you are in uh, polar regions. Like it's and, and a sort of similar thing in that it's just snow blindness in a way, ice. So describe, take us to one of your amazing journeys. Mm. Um, there's, there's, there's one journey I just want to just quickly bring you to, uh, just before you, you get disillusioned by the euphoria of arriving on a beach. Uh, to, 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 to gracious crowds of people <laughs> and turquoise sands. Um, a couple of years ago, I uh, paddled a kayak from Greenland to Scotland, and it was the first time any of my projects have ever finished in the UK. So I messaged both of my mates and saying, look, I'm, I'm coming into Scotland, and uh, it'll be wicked to see you there. And about five kilometres off the shore, you can start to see figures, right? The palm trees come up. I'm not many palm trees in Scotland, but the figures start to appear on the beach. I'm like, oh my God. Oh, there, was, there was like figures everywhere. And I thought this is going to be the party that Jamie speaks of. And got to within 500 metres. And it suddenly became, became quite clear that someone had herded some Aberdeen Angus cows onto the beach in the Balmakeel Bay. <laughs> and not one person came to see us in. <laughs> so anyway. Uh, yeah, but the cows did. The cows came to see us in. Yeah, <laughs> the cows come home. What are you complaining about? Uh, yeah, it's so true. So don't be disillusioned by the, by the wonder of, um, of uh, the finish line. But I, I think, I guess the question you asked was about the polar stuff. Uh, my experience obviously lies there, uh, probably predominantly. And if I can transport you there to what it feels like to be living uh, in a tent, uh, living out of a small sledge, uh, about maybe a metre and a half long, weighing approximately the same weight as Tualangi, the rugby player, the English rugby player, that you pull behind you on a daily basis. Um, a lot of things hurt uh, muscle-wise, certainly on the longest unsupported polar journey, which was a long one. <laughs> um, How long is it? It was just under 1,374 miles. Uh, same as from here to like top of Scotland and back again, uh, without resupply, without help, without any outside assistance, uh, no like kites or anything. We were dragging the sledge every single step of the way, um, which was stupid. Uh, <laughs> I was 19 at the time. Uh, very rarely Aww. could we see uh, blue and then white, because quite often it was total whiteout. 
so you couldn't really see your own hand in front of your face. I'm generally being absolutely serious when I say this is not sort of um, making it up for, for a good story. I, genuinely, this was probably uh, the worst time in my life. Um, I, as I said, I was very at a time when all of my friends were on gap years, taking time out between school and university in sort of Laos, Koh Phangan, and Bali and stuff, doing what teenagers do. And I was with one other bloke on an ice cap, sharing seven and a half square meters of a tent, um, living out of uh, off the back of these these sledges. Um, but this is, was the first, my first experience really uh, of polar travel. And since then, it's it's got got a bit ridiculous down to Antarctica and back up to the Arctic a few more times, uh, and then on to the next project, which is back up in the Arctic as well. But it's what, why do I love it? I guess what's so pretty about it and so beautiful that we could we can probably all three relate to is just how remote, how beautiful, how peaceful, how how silent uh, life is there. And I think silence is something that that we will never experience. In fact, if we try and make this room silence, we can still hear the echo of, of sort of the white noise in the background. Here, you find proper silence, you find proper darkness, no evidence of humans ever walking on the planet. And for me, and I think probably for most of us in this, in this room, we would find that feeling pretty special. It's a lovely way of describing it, just because it is so utterly different, and that's what it seems like all of you are, are looking for something that's completely different as well in terms of a challenge. Uh, did you fight with the other person that you were... No, just no, checking. weirdly not at all. No, um, I th- no. Uh, I mean, it's a completely different situation, so I'm not... Yeah, yeah. I'm just sort of saying whether there was... And, and in those whiteouts, in those times where you really can't see and you don't know where you're going and you're not... Yes, there's, there's no sort of nice blue, Arctic blue. What drove you on? What's that sort of inner strength that just keeps going? I mean, no one's going to rescue you. Yeah. Definitely. Because you're too far, it's just too yeah. much. But what drives you on? So just on the rescue thing quickly, Lucy, I think this whole idea of not being able to be rescued is, is not, not real anymore because, let's face it, we've been everywhere on the planet. So the real question is whether you can survive long enough for rescue to reach you. So we could be rescued, but could but we survive would, long enough? But it would take, yeah, it, would take, it, it does take a long time. Sure. So on to the, the second part of your question which is more about what drives me personally um, on these trips. I think it's probably, probably twofold. Um, for a start, I absolutely love what I do. Uh, I wouldn't sort of do this stuff and I wouldn't go swimming in the lake and just be a bit of a weirdo just because I want to sort of show off on Instagram or online. It's genuinely what I love doing. And... You had the reward maybe of a gin and tonic, didn't you? Yeah, I did. did just, I'm just checking. Have I got yeah. a point for that? Y- yeah, you do. It's ah. quite... <laughs> okay, fine. Um, uh, what keeps me going is this extraordinary opportunity to have. When, when you are faced with this opportunity to climb your Everest, whatever that adventure may be, right? It is right there. It's on a plate for you. And that is your opportunity to do it, right? And for me, that is the first aspect of what keeps me going. What drives me is that I'm in this situation right now. um, And what's telling me to go home is the top two inches. This thing, 
It's that powerful. It can say, I'm so tired, I'm so exhausted. I can hate the guy I'm with, I wanna go home, right? I wanna go home, that's what it can do. And it can make you do that, it's that powerful. But there's a little switch inside my head, and I think it's part of the preparation that we go through to, to do these journeys that are extremely long and difficult. <laughs> uh, part of the mental preparation includes getting yourself mentally ready for what you're about to face, right? So some of the things that I go through is slowing my brain down, putting less appointments in the diary, even as basic as speaking slower, doing less with my day, putting into my brain why I'm doing this, what is the purpose of me being here, so that every time I get to a situation where I'm in agony and I want to go home, I can refer back to that purpose which is absolutely ingrained in my mind as to why I'm there. And then the second bit would be, if I pushed the red button and went home, how would you feel when you finally collapsed into your sofa, put your feet on the perf or the, some Labrador or something, and then um, put on neighbours and thought, oh God, I'm home. My second thought would be, what have I just sacrificed? It's interesting because you really do feel it like a sacrifice that you would just be giving up something. And it is, it, I think when anybody gives up what they're doing, is it that you try to never doubt yourself? Um, I don't think it's, I don't think I try to never doubt myself. I just know that if I do doubt myself, then what I most fear happen happening is going to happen. And that's, the fear of failure, I suppose. Um, so I'd rather never let that doubt become a reality. Take us a little bit to the, to the desert, because again, we've, we've talked about sort of certain terrain. So what is that like? It's pretty epic, really. Um, <laughs> it's hot. Well, I mean, it could be cold too, but most of the deserts I've been to are hot. Um, funny enough, I'm actually awful in heat, so I always have to acclimatise to the heat. I'm that person who stands on the tube dripping in sweat in summer when other people are in puffer jackets. Um, but yeah, it's just the sense of sort of being at one with nature, um, being able to switch off completely from your phones and work. Um, I've lived in London all my life, so just... Um, yeah, having that peace and quiet, as George said. Um, and, yeah, it's just it's, it's a, a bit of a detox from normal life, really. That's a great way of thinking of it, actually, a detox from normal life. I mean, of course, the title of this uh, talk tonight, where we were being sort of overdramatic, asking, is exploration dead? Uh, clearly, it isn't um, dead. Um, but it feels like sometimes we've seen a lot of the world thanks to Instagram and Facebook and that there's no stone left uncovered or no vista unseen. Um, but I kind of feel that you would all have a, a, a good reaction to the idea that there's no exploration left to do on the planet. Yeah, I think um, to take a technical view on things, since the Global Positioning Satellite was launched in 1973... You know, exploration, which is actually it means mapping, um, is, is been made redundant. Um, but then 
people get into all sorts of different conversations, exploring yourself, exploring. Um, I study anthropology at university, so ex you know, exploring a, a go maybe, deep. Maybe a remote tribe or a population that maybe hasn't had human experience, which. You know, Benedict Allen is one of my favorite adventure ethnographer type people likes to do and spends lots of time in Papua New Guinea. Um, and then, of course, there are places on Earth that no one's been. I'm sure that there are, well, actually, the Atlantic's quite busy with cargo ships, but uh, I'm, I'm, I'm pro I've probably been, been a part of an ocean that no human's been. I'm positive that George has been on an ice cap where no one's been. Marina may have been, you know, stepped on a, a rock that no one has in a remote <laughs> desert somewhere. But um, I think if I'm going to take a technical view on things, which I like to do, um, there's nowhere left to explore other than the deep ocean or space. So James Cameron, you know, taking a, going down to the Mariana Trench and the deepest point on Earth, and whew, man, that is ballsy. I mean, the, the number of atmospheric pressures between here and the moon is one, but when you go down to, you know, 10 miles down, it's in the hundreds, um, and he would be crushed in an instant if anything happened to his capsule. I, I digress, but I think if you want to explore um, technically, the bottom of the ocean or up in space. For me, these guys will probably have different answers. Well, I'm just going to keep with you just for one second and say, how about space or deep ocean for you? I'm not smart enough. You need to be a scientist. Okay, so university, back, back to university. Didn't you have a, a, not a ding-dong with your parents, but your parents said if you were choosing to row across the ocean or stay in university you should stay in university and you said you weren't wired that way absolutely that is what i said and i think i think yeah these guys would probably i, I think george has probably already said something like that in his first answer where <clears throat> if you're given an opportunity by you know run of the mill um which is definitely more secure and advised probably by the masses or take a chance risk everything but experience something that maybe not many people have for me i'm always always going to go to the left and that's why I was allowed to come back to university, but uh, I didn't give a monkey's about my degree. You know, I, I spent six months at sea for that year that I took off at university. I did both rows in the same year. I'm just trying to stay alive, you know, on the ocean. And two weeks later, I'm being told that I've, uh, you know, committed plagiarism in my essays. And, you know, I don't, I don't care about that. I've just, that's not even on my sphere. So, uh, so yeah, I, I graduated with a degree without honours, which I think is worse than a third. Um, but I wouldn't swap one. I wouldn't swap what I've, what I've gained in experiencing things. And I do think that experiencing things when you're too young can be very de detrimental because you build up a tolerance and, uh, and to get the same kick um, or to get the same feeling or rush, uh, you have to keep pushing the bar further and further. And, uh, I, if I wanted to recreate how I did on the oceans, um, I would probably have to do the Pacific, which is twice as long, and just suffer for seven months to then feel that again. Although you could get to Hawaii and have a good time. Well, that's not the Pacific. That's half the Pacific. The, uh, a lot of people row from, from America to Hawaii and think they've done the Pacific, but actually that's just two and a half thousand the Pacific. Yeah, that's only a little bit. I was yeah. just thinking of a little stopgap. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah exactly. Like a bar in the middle <laughs> of the ocean. That's yeah. what I was kind of thinking. And then carry on. Yeah, yeah, yeah you've got to carry on. No one's done all three, by the way. Um, so maybe one day I'll go back and do the Pacific. George? You're going to have to remind me of the question, actually. Well, actually, it was your title in the beginning. So what? is exploration dead? 
It was my title. You're totally right. Was um, so I, I throw it back to you because I've I've thought long and hard about it. But. My my sort of honest things instinctual answer in the Edwardian sense of the word is yes. As as um, Jamie says, like the GPS sort of world is is the world is well mapped and well documented. But I, I still think that that uh, we all have a responsibility to, uh, I think, bring the planet and the health of our planet and indeed our universe, I think, to, to everyone uh, so that governments and or companies can make better decisions uh, around their CSR, their policies, et cetera, et cetera. So I think although the Edwardian sense of the word, yes, I'd agree that there's no more mapping to be done apart from maybe the, the, the bottom of the ocean. Uh, but I still think there's still space for, for, for explorers, for adventurers, for people to go out and really uh, push the limits of mankind, really understand, it, really understand exactly what's going on on our home planet. And I challenge you this, I bet none of you knew this, that for six months of the year on the Arctic Ocean, we know nothing about the Arctic Ocean for six months of the year. Nothing. You can pick up your mobile telephones right now and go onto Google, the phantom of all knowledge, and type in data on the Arctic Ocean in winter, right? That is the most pivotal barometer to the health of our planet we know nothing about for six months of the year. So in the Edwardian sense of the word, exploration is dead. Sure, I'll accept that. But I really don't think we don't know it. We don't know enough about our home planet to say exploration is dead. When you say about the Arctic, you're saying that what all the sort of channels at the top that you don't know how they whether you, whether they're open or things like that. What's no, no. I mean, so for example, um, this is my next project. Actually, weirdly, uh, we're working with NASA. So the North American Space Agency don't know uh, anything about the thickness of the, the the thickness of the ice and the depth of the snow. So we will be calibrating IceBridge, which is their satellite, which looks at the Arctic Ocean permanently, uh, but they don't know anything about it during winter. Um, people don't understand the impacts of plastics, they don't understand the currents up there, they don't understand the, uh, the drift of the ice, where exactly it ends up. So for six months of the year, in this extraordinarily uh, volatile place, we don't know anything about it. And so it requires people who want to go and spend six months up there on the Arctic Ocean in winter, in 24-hour darkness, to go and be there, uh, send back live content, live data, live imagery uh, about this part of the world. Aren't Inuit people there? Um, in, in, I mean, know, that know so much in many ways more than, um, you know, scientists. Yeah, absolutely. So you're right, but I mean, the Inuit people live um, uh, on the shores, right? They live on the north coast of Greenland, the north coast of Canada, the north coast of Alaska, the north coast of Russia. Um, and that's obviously a very generic name for, for people. So they, they've got different names and things. But uh, they mainly base themselves near land, right? Where the safety of the shore, the safety of hard rock beneath their feet, the safety of being able to find food from both the land and the sea is, is, is available. Um, but as you go further into the Arctic Ocean itself, there's no humans. People don't go there. Um, Obviously, the Arctic is an ocean, so there's no hard ground beneath it. So, are you going there? Is that where you're going next? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, that is my next project. Um, Marina, next one. 
What's the next exploration? Next challenge. Um, I'm no explorers like these two. Um, I am next doing a race in the Copper Canyons in Mexico, which is actually Jamie's race. He organises it, um, which is another 250-kilometre race over five days um, with 11,000 metres of climbing. So it's my first mountain multi-stage race, which will be interesting because I am no mountain goat at all. I'm not built for the mountains. Um, but that's probably why I'm doing it, because it's something a bit different. And I know I can do 250k in five days on flat terrain or sandy terrain. Um, but I always like to do something new that challenges me in a different way. So how are you training for that? Well... I did Ironman Austria in July, so I'm two weeks off of that. Sorry, two months off of that. Um, so I've already got a good base from there. Um, so now I'm just getting um, the mountain uh, training in, in London, would you believe it? Um, on the stepper in the gym, which is tedious. Um, and then on the weekends, I'm going to have to head out to probably the North Downs Way or the Chilterns, um, and yeah, just lots of treadmill, hill, incline stuff, which is really, really boring. I wondered, uh, you've, you've mentioned a little bit about Benedict Allen, oh. and I sort of wondered, um, do you have heroes? I know it's a bit of a cliche question in a way, but do, who are your heroes? Oh, I, I'm a bit of a cliche, because, you know, the, the guys with the names and the, and the women with the names, you know, people, people like, uh, you know, Sir Ranulph, I grew up reading Mad, Bad and Dangerous to Know and his stories of blowing things up in 2-1 SAS and I think he was amazing because he, uh, <clears throat> he is bridged old school exploration in what we were discussing earlier and he, was at, he has actually mapped parts of the earth and, and then also had to adapt as the world has changed drastically. People like Mike Horn. Mike Horn is a very, uh, <clears throat> he's not well known in this country at least, but he's a South African explorer who has done everything under the sun. Everest, around the world, Arctic, Antarctic, sailed all the oceans, jungle. He was a soldier in the, um, a South African soldier in the Angolan War and you should follow him on Instagram, he's amazing. But, uh, and also this, this guy that no one knows called uh, Fedor Konyakov, who I think is probably the most decorated adventurer on, on the planet. He puts someone like Saranov to shame. I mean, this guy is, he's done everything five times as well as hot air ballooned around the world. He rode the Pacific Ocean solo. So he was seven months alone at sea. He's a Russian Orthodox priest um, who also does these crazy, crazy challenges. <clears throat> and then I think now he's recently, or he's part of rowing around the Southern Ocean, which is the most dangerous, scary, perfect storm, George Clooney type, all the time, it's like that. It's freezing winds and, and the ocean just rush around Antarctica constantly. You know, when they talk about um, latitude in the ocean below 40 degrees, which is, you know, by the bottom of South Africa, they start calling it the roaring 40s. Well, the Southern Ocean, and they call it the screaming 60s. And it's just the most terrifying place on earth. And, and he's alone in a rowing boat being blown around Antarctica. So that guy fed all Mike Horn and, uh, and then Sir Ranoff that we all know, I just, I love hearing stories of their tales. And that's, at, those are the guys that I, um, 
that I that I have been that I've looked up to my entire life and that I've wanted to simulate really. And that is for me at least. I just wanted to I just wanted to be him. Um, so those are my heroes. I love it, Rena. I don't really idolise people. I don't know. I just I more idolise a challenge or something different, something um, that will push me outside of my comfort zone. Um, I think I've I've tend to find something that I love doing so much, and then I see who the heroes in that area are, and obviously, then that gives me a gauge of, you know, what to aim for. But yeah, I don't really tend to idolise. I just set myself my own expectations of what it is I want to achieve. Well, put put it this way then, um, let's do the kind of reverse because I'm sure you get a lot of people now asking you how, and I'm not sort of, I mean, you're definitely uh, a hero, but, you know, do you feel that people come up, well, people come up to you and and seek your advice? Yeah, people do. And, um, but yeah, I would would never say anyone idolises me. I think people definitely look up to sort of my hard work and determination because, that I mean, I will say I am very determined. When I have a goal in mind, I will one hundred percent give it my all. Um, but no, I I don't. I wouldn't ever say anyone idolizes me. People people come to me and ask me questions and advice. You know, what kit to wear, and oh, I'm doing this race in a couple of weeks. Can you help me with this, that, and the other? Um, and yeah, I love doing that. That's that is one of the reasons why I. Um, like to promote what I do on Instagram or social media um, because and especially being a girl being in the minority um, proving to young girls that they can do so much more than they actually think they can and again bringing that point up there's like a girl team I'd love you to tell us a little bit about that yeah so there was 10 girls um we did Jordan um again one of Jamie's races that he organizes in the Wadi Rum um which is what some of the photos were up here um it was 250k in five days um and we organized a team of 10 girls some who were complete newbies to um, endurance running um, and some who had done some races before, but it was all about um, proving to people that girls can do these extreme challenges and they're just as capable as men doing them. Um, and I suppose just trying to improve the ratio between men and women because in Ironman Nice that I did, for example, only 8% were women, which is so, so bad. Um, and I think in the Jordan race, when the 10 of us girls did the race, we managed to get the ratio up nearly half and half, yeah, wasn't it? Yeah. And we're seeing a, a massive increase in female participation in these uh, long endurance events. And there's a bit of a side note, but there's data coming out that suggests that the longer the race, the better women do. Um, but they just don't, they don't have the confidence or... Uh, they they never think that they're capable of doing it. I think that's the difference between men and females, is that men probably naturally have larger egos than women do, and they think that they can 
but they take those risks and they think, oh, yeah, I can just do that on a whim. But women are far more reserved and think, oh, no, I'm prob I probably can't do that. Um, so I do like to show women. Like, I always tell people, yes, of course you can do it. Just believe in yourself, have the confidence, and just get up there and just go and do it. And you'll prove to yourself that you are capable of so much more than you thought you were. Here, here. In Jordan, there was a a tough Royal Marine who chatted a big game and, uh, and by day three his feet had fallen apart um, and, he, and he had to give up. His feet were bleeding. He was so, uh, he was so poorly prepared and he totally thought that he could come and, and boss this because he was a macho man. And you just cruise past him and all the women did because they were so well prepared, so well trained that they were absolutely the example of what you should go into these challenges with that sort of mindset. Yeah. And, and just uh, kind of, in, in a way, a sort of modern society, sort of, uh, you, you're at school, you do, um, you do team sports, you do a lot of things, and then you kind of get into work and it all sort of tends to drop off. Whereas, you know, I think, uh, well, for all of you, um, but with Marina, you, you, you just didn't let that drop off. You know, you, you, you set yourself some goals from an early age, got into running, uh, did little little goals and then bigger goals and then much bigger goals. So I think it's just, um, yeah, it's just it's kind of exciting to see that. And as you say, that's what, like, a girl does. It, it brings it up um, into that sense of adventure. Yeah, absolutely. Heroes, George? Heroes. Um... I'm probably more in Marina's camp here. I, you know, I've got some guys who I really respect in the industry and really look up to uh, for what they've done and how they've gone about it and indeed learnt a lot from them and uh, you know, enjoy calling some of the, these people my friends um, because you know, some of the things they've done are, are incredible and we can all learn a lot from the experiences that they have had. Uh, but I really wouldn't be able to to, to sit down and pin uh, my he pin my hero up on the wall above my bed. Uh, although I do look up to a lot of people and respect what they do, I, I think that, that that kind of overlaps a little bit with with what my perception of success is. And I think we we all have a very different perception of success. Some people might think it might be earning lots of money or, you know, having amazing adventures or a very stable job. I think that perception of success and heroism is all totally different and I wouldn't be able to pin someone down and say, I think they've been successful, they've been heroic. But I, I can look at anyone in the street and almost uh, be able to say that actually they have been successful if they're happy with what they've done and uh, satisfied and grateful for the life they've had on this planet. So I think those people might not be, they might not be in the same area as me, but I might be able to uh, idolise them and look up to them if, if they do, if they are happy and if they can look back on their life and be like, that was, that was an epic ride. So. Well, that's a lovely way to, um, I think, open up to the audience if uh, there are some questions anybody would like to ask. Like it is said a that um, beyond the age of 25, up to the age of 25, you feel no fear. You seem to defy this. So maybe you do have to be a bit bonkers. 
<laughs> to do what you do. And can, has this become a profession? Because we've all got to make ends meet. I think you're there, George, <laughs> to answer. Um, I think I, I probably... I'm totally different. I can totally, totally uh, accept that. Uh, I look at my friends and th they all think I'm a bit mad. But, but I do know that my friends look at what I do and they kind of want to do it themselves. So, yes, I appreciate it. Totally bonkers. Maybe in your perspective, totally bonkers. But for me... I genuinely believe I'm just living my best. Um, it's been really interesting hearing you all, actually. I suppose my question goes more on the lines of... I've got two questions, actually. The first one is, I read recently about endurance racing, maybe aimed more at Marina, but all of you could answer. Um, and it's said that half of it is physical fitness, but the other half is mental fitness. Yeah. And as a, I'm, I'm, as a doctor myself, mm -hmm. I was interested in the sports psychology of it and whether any of you use special sports psychologists or if that's something that's becoming more in your industry or, you know, along those lines, basically. Or what you do if you don't use a sports psychologist. I don't use a sports psychologist. I have a coach, um, and an element of his coaching is about mental preparation. Um, because they say, I mean, I, I certainly think as well that in your training, it's... Probably 80% physical, 20% mental, maybe. Oh, it's, it is hard waking up in the morning, every morning and after work, exercising. But And then when you race, it flips. So it's more mental than it is physical because you've done all the hard work to get yourself, your body ready for the race. Um, and then it's, um, well, depending on the severity of how hard the race is, it's just about pushing through. Um, but to answer your question, no. Um, but a lot of the training I do, whether it's through my coach or even me coaching myself, it, it is mental um, because it's a massive part of endurance racing, um, training your mind and um, yeah, building that confidence, um, visualising. I do loads of visualising when I'm training, um, imagining myself crossing the finish line, whether it's fist pumping or like doing a cartwheel over the finish line, which I've never done, but um, it's just about, yeah, I suppose, just seeing it happen so that you know it is actually possible to happen. It's a great question. I do use sports psychologists, which is kind of cool and quite interesting. Um, but we mainly use them for uh, assessing ourselves. Um, and assessing our own blind spots uh, and own uh, sort of tickers, maybe that's a good way of describing it, things which make you tick, things which make you switch. Uh, maybe it would mean someone, something more to someone who's in the business. But um, to illustrate that, I have an interesting story for you. Um, so... Three of us training Northern Canada to minus 40, walking the ice road um, in Northern Canada. We've been out for a month and living in a tent, uh, pulling our stuff behind us. 
the class, the old favourite. And we went to go and see our sports, our psychologist. And what he does is really simple. It seems really simple and quite peculiar to us. He asks you a whole load of, has a whole load of statements, or the first exercise was a whole load of statements on a bit of paper. And he says, uh, order these statements, uh, good to bad. Okay? And everything you do is tracked. The amount of time you take, the amount of time, that you, the, how often you reorganize the statements, um, and which order you put them in, obviously. Uh, and the statements kind of range from, um, forgive me, they're, they're, some of them are really nasty. So some of them are like blowing up and falling down, the twin towers falling down. Um, a, a hot day in summer, uh, or um, what else they range from. But you, you see what I mean? They're quite random and quite obscure statements you had to put in order. And what it led us to understand was that the three of us were reasonably alpha, right? Or alpha female, alpha male, right? You're reasonably proud of suggestions that you come up with. So, situation was uh, James, James's ski broke. And all three of us immediately turned around and went, this is how you fix it. Right? But the problem is you can only take one of those solutions. Right? In order to move forward, you're all on the same path, speaking business right now, everyone. we're all on the same path, we've got the same objectives, the same mission, the same aims. But in order to make, make progress along that route, we have to make one choice, one decision, one step forward. <laughs> and that means choosing which one of those is the right way. Which, which one of those is the way that we're going to choose. Anyway, what happened was really interesting. My way wasn't chosen, okay? I don't know which way it was, but A, B, and C. I chose C. C wasn't chosen by James, okay? And my other teammate thought that I was really annoyed that my way wasn't chosen. So there was a situation where Alex was gone quiet and sort of upset and a bit shy of me because he thought that I was angry, and James was blissfully unaware of this whole thing because his ski was better because he'd chosen the right way to fix it, right? So it's a team of three, uh, totally extraordinary. But until we sat down that evening and we're like, right guys, just FYI, in order to make this, make steps along this route that we're all following, we need to make one decision. And if it's not yours, George, were you annoyed today? Were you upset? And obviously in that conversation, I was like, not at all. I, from our sports science, we realized that we have this slight blind spot, all of us, and we now are happy with what's been done because we all know that. So yes, I have sports science, sports science coaching and it's absolutely fascinating to know what makes you flip, what makes you tick, what makes you angry, what makes you happy because you can then at least be aware that in that situation, that is what happens and then you can discuss it afterwards, which is really interesting. So you weren't annoyed with him? No, not at all. Not annoyed at all in the slightest, but it took the sports scientists and that discussion afterwards for everyone to be like, oh, great, there's no worries at all. Just clear the air totally. So is it good to have three alphas on a trip or is it actually better to have you know, somebody who's willing to... That's a great question. Um, I don't know. Anyone else? <laughs> James, um, James Cracknell and Ben Fogle rode together and, and James Cracknell is well known for being the most bloody-minded individual. Um, you know, they say, you know, 
if you're running a if you're if you, you know you're running a marathon or, or an ultra marathon maybe because you might not stop in an ultra marathon and you have a blister or something that's paining your shoe, James is the kind of guy that will push on, and he won't deal with it. Ben Fogel seemed like the kind of personality that would that would stop, take the stone out of his shoe, and continue. And I think on team journeys and and, and long journeys. James is the sort of individual they decided that would actually hamper the team because he would run his body into the ground, not looking after himself, not saying, guys, this is too slow or, or I need to eat now, I'm wasting away. And he would go on at the detriment of the team because if he's broke, if he breaks, that hurts everyone. Ben Fogel is the kind, not the type of alpha male that will say, guys, I'm sorry, we're going too fast now. But what it will mean is that Ben will be able to look after his body and go further. So. Three alpha males sounds uh, dangerous. Um, but I also think that you know, these guys are professionals in a sense and that they know that, um, they probably know when, when the right time to back down is and to, uh, and to say, actually, you know, I don't mind if you don't take mine or, or take John's, you know, um, because the mission is bigger than me having my way. Yeah. Thanks a lot. So I think one's an observation and one's a question. So um, do you remember during the summer we all saw the pictures of people queuing going up Everest? Mm. And it was quite incredible. I guess my question is, do you think the commercialization of extreme sports is a risk to the sport itself? And are you concerned about that? Yeah, Everest is extremely commercial now. It's uh, to get a climbing permit, um, something like fifteen or $20,000. And that's a great money earner for the Nepalese government and tourism board. Um, but it's without a doubt killing people. Uh, because when they're in the death zone, you're literally dying. Once you go above, I think, 23, 24,000 feet, you can only stay up there for 24 hours max. Your body is literally dying every minute that you spend up there. And having people queue on the Hillary step um, is putting lives at risk. It's, it's an interesting question because climbing Everest, reaching the highest point on Earth, is still a fantastic achievement and I'm sure an incredible six-week adventure. Um, but every man and their dog seems to be doing it. So, so people now, I hear people speak negatively about, oh, who would want to do Everest? Everyone does Everest. But actually, if you, if you step away from the idea that, sure, hundreds of people a year are summiting, and actually it's still a phenomenal adventure. And yes, some people are going up with oxygen, which is a lot easier, and some mad folk are going without, which is still a whole lot harder. You know, each to their own. That's how, that's how I kind of see it. But... But adventuring and, and you know, exploration now is about being original because all the big journeys have been done, I think. And now someone has to come up with something that hasn't been done or take a different angle. And that's how you'll, I think, uh, tweak interest in, in the exploration market again. I was just going to say, I don't think it ruins it just because everyone's doing it. I mean, I've since I started when I was 22, I'm now 28, I have definitely seen a massive spike in people doing these types of challenges, but um, I welcome that more than anything. Um, and yes, um, I think it has to be done carefully, um, but I'd rather, well, I mean, that's the whole point why I'm even sat here, because I want to encourage people to do it. Um, so I'd never, I'd never say that more and more people doing it is ruining it. I think, if anything, it's positive in my in my opinion anyway so it's a really interesting question about the commercialization of uh, of adventure mainly because jamie runs ultra x i run a company called igo adventures so we are in the business of making money out of they're both probably making, they're both 
for-profit companies. Um, so we're both in that business. Um, and I think maybe there's a, an ethical question there around making money out of making the beauty of remote places more popular with people. Um, to, to kind of combat that, I think there's a, a responsible way to go about commercialising, if you like, commercialising adventure. Uh, but I also believe there's a real responsibility for us as tour operators, as operators of adventures, to make sure we do it as res to make sure we do it responsibly. Period. Um, to make sure we look after people who want to experience uh, adventure, want to experience the outdoors, but do it in the most responsible fashion that we poss possibly can. Um, so I'm totally in line with these guys. I, tr I think. I think the pictures on Everest are not nice, um, but commercialising adventure in a responsible way, I think, is totally perfect to, to do. Um, I find that interesting because I think what, a part of what commercialising adventure means is taking people that are not experts and actually know very little about that sport or that particular expedition and letting them achieve it. If we think, you know, 50 years ago, the people that climbed Everest were the best mountaineers in the world. They were the best of their sport. They, would, they had climbed for years before they took on this sacred mountain. Now investment bankers um, are climbing Everest with just a couple of, uh, you know, maybe a 6,000 metre peak, maybe Kilimanjaro to find out whether they can cope with the Everest and then they're going with, uh, sorry, to cope with the altitude and then they're going for the big one. Equally, I had no experience on the ocean. You know, I'm talking from, from personal experience. I had no rowing experience and I had no sailing experience. Yet I took on an ocean crossing in a rowing boat, you know, which is absurd in, in, in many ways. Previously, it was the best sailors in the world that took on the first ocean rows. Um, I think, I think it's, probably, it's probably dangerous when people um, that aren't in that world take on these trips, but it, it's also a good thing, I guess, if people are taking on their gene, uh, dreams and achieving them. So, um, but I tell you, what, I've got to be honest, I do, I do see people, maybe investment bankers, summiting, summiting Everest, and it, there is a part of me that thinks, you don't deserve to be there. You've had guides and porters carry all your gear. You've had, uh, <clears throat> you've had Sherpas feed you oxygen all the way up. You've had all your ropes prefixed. Um, and you've been able to pay this huge fee for you know, someone like Kenton Cool to take you up. Um, but I just you know, want to be honest that I definitely, I'm not, I'm not this, this saint that, you know, each their own, you know, do what you love. I, I do have an opinion on that stuff and, and that's quite unhealthy in some ways, I guess. I think that's a bit harsh. <laughs> <laughs> you can sort that later. Yeah. You might, you might be interested to know that George Band, who climbed Everest um, when he was alive, lived in Hartley Whitney just down the road, and he's, uh, his family still, still live there. Do you have any connections with the British Schools Exploring Society? Because, sadly, they lost a child to a polar bear maybe 10 years ago, and so safety has to come into your remit of your exploits. Was that the guy at your school? I was a guide on that, that trip. Um, so I work with them a lot and love what they do. Um, what was your actual question, madam? Sorry. Do you, do you, um, do you work with them? Uh, you know, do you encourage... Yes. 
hundred percent, a million percent, actually. I, um, it's totally changed my perspective on life, adventure, that is. Um, and getting outside as a young kid, getting scrapes on my knees, dirt under my fingernails, climbing trees, uh, falling out of trees as well. Uh, it's, it's totally changed my perspective on, on life. And um, I think it's given, it could, it does, British Schools Exploring Society gives kids, young people between the ages of 16 and 21, a really incredible uh, grasp on what they're capable of, what they're able to achieve, what they're able to do. Um, it gives them an incredible grasp of leadership, of uh, survival, of what life's really about. Um, it gives them an incredible grasp of, uh, of the planet the, and the health of the planet, the science that we need and the data that we need to collect and the responsibility that we all have uh, for our planet, our home. So I love what British schools or now British Exploring Society do. Um, I wanted to know what made Bear Grylls tick. And I found his last book quite fascinating. He talked about it being not self-confidence, but God-confidence. I don't know whether you've had much contact with Bear. I have. Had a, um, I have had a bit of contact with Bear, um, and he's great, and a bit of a supporter of some of the stuff that we do. Um, and I can see where he's coming from. Everyone knows Bear's very, very spiritual. Very, he's a religious, religious guy. And so I, I can't really speak for him, but what I can speak for is myself. Um, I have a faith, but I wouldn't say I was deeply, deeply religious. Uh, and I definitely believe when, when I'm at my wit's end, you know, in a tent, I'm feeling very vulnerable in a kayak, on an ice cap, uh, I don't know, swimming in an ocean, I've got no idea what adventure, whatever adventure it is, you feel incredibly vulnerable. And actually the only emotion that you have left is, is hope. Um, and I, I've genuinely got to that situation. Um, 2007, uh, we ran out of food uh, on an ice cap, uh, on Greenland in fact, and we had... We were, uh, had another, don't quote me on this, about 200 miles to travel, and we ran out of food. We lived off two and a half flapjacks a day, ate um, basically fat that we had left over, made it into like a ghee, made it into what, you know, what you feed the birds in winter. We crumbled the flapjacks into that melted ghee butter over the flame and then made it into like an apple shape, and we shared that apple for the day. So I got to that, that, that moment where your three key uh, sources of survival, as in food, water and warmth, one of them was gone, pretty much. And that left me with just hope, really. And it's not really, it wasn't at that stage when I turned to someone bigger than me. It was kind of all actually throughout all of my adventures, I genuinely turned to someone who's bigger than me and just say, like, look, they might not even be there, but I think it's this thing, again, it's your mind, your mental, your stability. And you turn to someone and say, look, you know, please look after me, because at that stage you run out of food, all you've got left is water and warmth. You kind of need someone at that stage to, who you believe to be bigger than you and stronger than you, who I like to believe that there's someone bigger and stronger. There is obviously someone bigger, but I like to believe that there's someone out there looking over me, because at that point you have nothing else. 
Yeah, I mean, I think you've made us all feel very much more adventurous in our own lives. And um, I'd like you all to join me in thanking you very, very, very much for tonight. Thank you. an episode of the Assembly at Heckfield Place podcast. You can find out more about the Assembly by visiting the Heckfield Place website and you can join the conversation on social media by searching for at Heckfield underscore place and the hashtag Heckfield Place. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.